Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan follow Matos back to Detroit for a look at the evolution of minimal techno and the rise of Richie Houghton, a.k.a. Plastic Man. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? And you know if I'm saying that. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And this week we're talking about Chapter 9, Spastic, Detroit, Michigan, August 8, 1994. That's the name of an event, not some sort of insult against those uh, suffering from uncontrolled muscle uh, spasms. So... Important to point out. Very yes. important to point out. Yes. And in the, in the 90s, people said spaz, spastic all the time, didn't think anything of it. And we try to be a little bit more conscious than that these days. Don't yeah, at least at least bringing it up and, and mentioning that we know it's kind of messed up. Yep. And that's that's the least we can do. And that's what we're doing. And so he dives right in. We're in Detroit, back to the to the birthplace of techno. I guess this is our third visit to Detroit so far in this book. Yeah, this this chapter is a couple of things. On top of it all, it's the Plastic Man chapter. It's also kind of the minimal chapter, the minimal techno chapter. And it's a continuation of the Detroit second wave chapter. Wave one being uh, Juan Atkins, Kevin Saunderson, Derek May, you know, the the the, uh, the Belleville three. And then wave two being the, uh, Jeff Mills, Underground Resistance, uh, who we've talked about previously. And now we're getting into... The second half of that with guys like Carl Craig, Robert Hood, who was part of Underground Resistance, and uh, this geeky kid from Canada named Richie Houghton. Yeah, I hope your Canadian patriotism is off the chain today. It's it's up there. I mean, Richie, Richie has a reputation a little bit. You know, you can't get as big as Richie or Moby without having some people taking the piss out of you. But I, the more I go back and listen to Richie Houghton, the more I really like him. Agreed. I've really enjoyed this. And, you know, Simon Reynolds, our last, the author of our last series, and no disrespect, we love Mr. Reynolds and his work, but he's not the biggest fan of the minimal techno. And I enjoyed Matos's just unbridled enthusiasm for this stuff and feel like he's giving the genre its due. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I understand it. Uh, when when I was kind of coming up through the scene, Minimal was, you know, I didn't have 13 minutes to to kind of just let a, a track saturate in my brain. And, and, you know, I just it just felt it felt as minimal as it was labeled and it just wasn't for me. But now, you know, just putting it on in the background and just just allowing it to happen. I, I have much more of an appreciation for it. So uh, if I had something to tell 18 year old me is like, you know, you might not like it, but, you know, when you're older, you, you're going to you're going to dig it. Happy news. Happy news. And I enjoyed it, too. And he starts a chapter out talking about Carl Craig who's, like you say, a, a third wave figure in Detroit, talks about the song Throw, which Craig released as Paperclip People. And it was something that he created while he was watching the Super Bowl in January 1994. And as a big fan of the old Troy Aikman Dallas Cowboys, I was uh, happy to see that that Troy and the boys were inspiring some great art. And, and he was surprised that this was an immediate hit on the dance floor. I mean, the first time he played it, many tracks, many legendary tracks say uh, Future's Acid was one that, you know, um, which it wasn't Frankie Knuckles. It was Ron Hardy that had to, to had to really work the crowd to get to get acid tracks over with the crowd in Chicago. Not so for throw. Carl Craig put it out there and people went crazy right away. So he was on to something. 
Yeah, throw and, and paperclip people in general uh, kind of marks the beginning of this this funky, chunky, filtered house sound that uh, goes on to become French touch. You got all these disco samples and bass lines being like thrown like out into space and layered under 909s and 808s. It's really the beginning of when you're having, uh, you know, the more organic disco sound just being roboticized. And it's a really cool sound, and it's one that that Carl Craig pushed out. Has the guy has like no boundaries, no issues with breaking the rules of different genres to combine everything together. And uh, you know, if what he did was completely different and useless for one uh, moniker, he would just go and put it out under another. And he's got a dozen aliases with with a whole bunch of really strange stuff. That's uh, that's yeah, that's just a lot of it is really groundbreaking. Yeah, and and it's interesting. They they talk about his career a little bit. He grew up in West Detroit. Uh, he started out on Derek May's Transmount label, but then by 1990 he had co-founded his own label, Retroactive Records, with Damon Booker. Then he started Planet E Communications on his own, and uh, puts out records like Bug in the Bass Bin in 1992, which is that's another Sugeneris track that goes on to be massively influential. He put it out on a 12 inch, a vinyl 12 inch that accompanied. Planet E's Intergalactic Beat CD comp- compilation, but it wasn't on the CD compilation. But then people like Fabio and Groove Rider at Rage in London are playing it all the time, playing it at 45 RPM instead of the prescribed 33 uh, RPM so they could fit it into their proto jungle sets. But it also presaged Broken Beat, which is a whole later movement. And your references to his would you say influence on French Filter House, or would you say he was working on parallel tracks with Daft Punk? And- uh, I, I'd say it's his influence. I mean, he basically, Paperclip People was where he stuffed all of his kind of loopy, filtered uh, house sound. And uh, it's the filter that makes uh, French Touch and that Daft Punk sound, the, the and the loops as well. I mean, uh, Daft Punk is one of those groups that can just take a, you know, a four-bar a four bar sample and just play it for 12 minutes and have you groove to it. And that's something that Carl Craig didn't invent, but uh, he was definitely one of the guys that was pushing, pushing that sound under paperclip people. Yeah. And, and he's doing a lot of stuff and it's interesting the way that the genre definitions are so fluid at this point when he's inventing these genres, essentially there wasn't a box to put it in. It was just a new track and it's going to get played alongside hardcore evolving into jungle, which I don't think of Carl Craig and Jungle in the same breath. I see them as kind of opposites, but apparently not at the time. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool little aside that was stuffed into the chapter about how Craig made this track. You know, this guy in Detroit makes this track and it ends up in London and it ends up shaping instrumental and shaping this new sound that's coming out of the UK. And Bug in the Basement was one of these records that inspired a ton of producers to follow the sound that they heard in the club. And it was one of Goldie's biggest influences when he was starting to produce drum and bass. And, uh, you know, while a lot of Jungle was coming out of breakbeat hardcore at the time, this jazzy break style that Carl Craig brought along became a cornerstone of the Bristol drum and bass sound. So it's completely off track from everything that's happening in Detroit. It just happens to be this weird thing that he did that, that has all of this influence across the world. And let's go ahead and hear our first track, and this is by F.U.S.E. Fuse, Substance Abuse, 1991. And that was Substance Abuse from 1991 by Fuse. Hey, that's not Carl Craig. That's Richie Hutton. What's going on? Why'd you pick this track? Yeah, you know what? I have regrets about basically making this episode, uh, you know, most of the samples being Richie Hutton or Richie Hutton uh, uh, artists, like under different names and stuff like that. I probably should have thrown in Bug in the Bass Bin. You can get the 45 version on YouTube and hear what it sounded like sped up. And it's definitely worth checking out to, to kind of get an idea for what, what we're talking about here. But yeah, I picked Richie Hutton because this is, again, a very Richie Hutton heavy chapter. 
and uh, I wanted to to kind of go through his career and fuse this track. This is Richie Houghton's response to Energy Flash by Joey Beltram. He was always get, already getting a bit jaded at the over-the-top rave techno sound. And uh, this one here, uh, Energy Flash, having that that whispers of ecstasy in it. And then his track coming out and having Overdose being whispered over and over again. So it was a, not, he says it's not a diss track. Uh, it, it's kind of actually kind of a complimentary. You can DJ them back to back. They they go together really well. And you can have some fun DJing it together. But it's like a response track. And it's one of the early, more ravey, Richie Houghton tracks back when he wasn't so up his own ass about minimalism, you know? Yeah, and it's interesting. And and the next thing that that Matos talks about is Berlin and the relationship, the symbiotic relationship, frankly, between Berlin and Detroit. And it's just fascinating to me that for a movement, you know, the Belleville Three pretty much started out as Germanophiles. I mean, Deutschphiles. They they loved Kraftwerk and and the the sounds coming out of Germany. So it makes sense that they would their music would be taken up in Berlin. It's kind of an oddity of history that techno, frankly, never became massively popular in Detroit, or at least not until the 21st century. And so Berlin becomes their marketplace, and Pult has this magnetic attraction so that all the Belleville Three, um, Carl Craig, Richie Houghton, the Underground Resistance guys, Robert Hood, Jeff Mills, Matt, Matt, Matt Mike Banks, they all spend a lot of time in, in Berlin, but they always have this sort of biting the hand that feeds them vibe. I mean, you know, you're talking about Richie Hot now, he's making an answer track to Joey Beltram, and it's like they're profiting from the popularity of this music worldwide, but they've always got reservations, always got doubts and quibbles and, and qualms. Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, Berlin is just one of those places where the scene exists for long enough that it gets more sophisticated than you see in, in America. And we, we talked about this exodus to Berlin in an email exchange with one of our listeners. I just got to put it out there on the podcast as well. It was definitely a good idea for these guys to get out of America and spend as much time in Europe as possible. Because if you're starting to, to listen if you've been listening to this whole season of the podcast, you'll realize that America was in a constant state of boom and bust. Like the music institute in Detroit lasted barely two years. NASA and New York, which is like a, you know, a, such an important chapter with barely a year at all. Like you could build something good. It ends for whatever reason and uh, be it police crackdowns, drug problems, scene churn, whatever. And you have to build it all over again, again and again. The scene in Berlin was more stable and it was evolving. So after the wall went down, there wasn't this war between the state and dance music and dance music never got pushed to the fringes by rock or rap. So it was just the perfect place for, for a scene, not only to, to grow, but to mature. Yeah, absolutely. And it talks a lot about the um, influences that were, that were hitting Berlin in the early nineties. And I guess this is, is this the first time in the book that he's, he's swung through Berlin? Uh, I believe so. I think we might have had some like name drops and some discussions about about guys briefly, but this is, you know, the first page or two that's yeah. devoted. And so he has to kind of go back all the way back to 1990 and, and the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and how this music kind of explodes in Berlin. Um, mentions DJ Bobby Condor's record, The Poem, which sampled Mutabaruka's disc poem. Um, but people really liked it for the baseline. It had kind of a proto-techno baseline. Um, there's a club, Tresor, big underground club in Berlin, I believe literally underground. They also had a record label um, and put out a ton of records from Detroit, Underground Resistance, uh, DJ T1000, Blake Baxter, Flash and Eddie Flash and Folks, uh, the fourth member of the Belleville Three, Juan Atkins as Infinity. Um, you also had Berlin producers like Thomas Fellman, Mark Nestis, Moritz Van Oswald, who go to Detroit, make the big pilgrimage there. Um, Atkins ends up partnering with Fellman and Von Oswald to be 3MB, which is three men in Berlin, um, and uh, puts stuff out like Game One by Infinity, which is Atkins with Dutch producer Orlando Vorn. But Atkins held that one back for his own Metroplex label. So this stuff is complicated. Everybody's got their own label. They're doing stuff on other labels. They're doing stuff in partnership. Um, you also have Robert Hood uh, putting out Internal Empire, uh, his 1994 album on Tresor. So it's 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 interesting stuff, just a real mix and fermentation, a lot of uh, cross-continental creativity being going on. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, yeah. 
it was really smart of the guys in Detroit to have their own labels so that they could push out whatever they wanted. Carl Craig said it best. Like if Derek May didn't want to release his, his stuff, he'll go and make his own label and, and, and release it himself. He didn't want to be held back by any of that. These guys now have the opportunity to get uh, put out on, on labels in, in Germany and uh, make connections like that. And, uh, uh, Juan Atkins makes his initial trip over to Germany off the back of a potential record deal with Trezor. So it was all kind of a, all part of a business package. I think uh, Matos termed it as their business home. Like they might not have been living in Germany, but they all of the business was coming through there. Yeah, and, and it's much better than the alternative, which is not having that infusion of foreign interest and foreign cash into your career. I hate to postulate a scenario in which this creativity died on the vine just because there wasn't enough critical mass to support it in Detroit. Fortunately, the global marketplace opened up. And then he's got this little interesting sort of side story about Robert Hood of Underground Resistance. And UR has broken up by this point. And Hood is making his own records, but he's sort of having a crisis of confidence. And he says, you know, I don't want to be Fife Dog after Tribe Called Quest breaks up, which I guess... I who's Fife Dog? What happened to Fife Dog? What? Well, Five Dog is is the number two guy in Tribe Called Quest. He's the, I mean, Q-Tip's obviously the main rapper and main producer, but Five was kind of the uh, rap assassin, the, the king rhymer of, of that group, and kind of the street guy in Tribe Called Quest, where, where Q-Tip was kind of the college guy or whatever, or the backpack rapper, and Five kind of kept it more street. And it was just one of those things where Tribe Called Quest's success overshadowed everybody in, including q-tip but q-tip wrote produced was the front man fife was the secondary uh front man not the producer and one of these tragic cases where he's diabetic and he won't stop drinking the soda and, and ends up you know dying young although in the 2000s and he did actually make uh, some noteworthy solo albums but it's just one of those guys that very much I don't know if Hood was talking about this before Tribe Called Quest broke up or if he talked about it looking back and and thinking of Five Dog because at the point at which this is happening, Tribe Called Quest is anything but breaking up. But it's one of those deals where anybody could have seen it coming that Q-Tip was the one that was going to go on to have a bigger career than Five Dog and Five Dog uh, kind of suffered in comparison. It's a tribe called Quest. Um, but anyway, he, Hood had this, this, this worry that he was going to be overshadowed forever by underground resistance, and he's trying to break away. But then later, looking back on it, and so I guess he must be speaking retroactively because he says, you know, later I realized that Jeff Mills was still mentoring me, but now he was mentoring me into finding my own style. And his own style is this minimal style. And so tracks like Losing Control by DBX from 1994, uh, the Circus Bells Hard Floor remix of Robert Armani's 1993 track, his 1994 album Minimal Nation on Implant Records. Um, You know, this is all part of this process of creating this new style and helping Hood get his feet under him and get his the confidence of his vision but let's go ahead and hear our next track and this is plastic man's conception with a k from Conception from 1994 by Plastic Man again with the Richie Hodden. What's up? Yeah, I mean, this one here is uh, this is the first track off of his music album, and it's a uh, it's a real slow, minimal beast of a track. And uh, this is exactly the kind of stuff that Plastic Man was making. He had a couple of, of of you know more energetic, dance floor friendly tracks, but he was making a lot of these really weird, kind of sonically interesting. Um, not ambient, but but you know, I guess you could say just minimal techno. It was uh, it was very sparse, very echoey, very vibey, and uh, just the the sound quality on it is uh, is just so primo. I had to include it. I'm not gonna knock you. I'm not gonna knock you for for throwing that in. And he Hotton is definitely 
the artist of the chapter. But another character gets introduced before we get to Houghton, and that's Mark Bishki. Yeah. Any guesses on how to say it? Bishki. Is that Bishki? All right. So he's another Detroiter. He's a clubber from age 14 on, but he happened to be in London for the Summer of Love. I guess that's 91. Um, and he uh, read about Double Hit Mickey. That's the L.A. promotion that was profiled in Details magazine um, and said, hell no, we are not going to have, you know, bouncy houses at any range in Detroit. He wants to bring back. He wants to keep the rave scene happening in Detroit, but not be ravey. He doesn't want to be like the club kids in New York. He doesn't want to be like the, the kids in L.A. So he founds Voom, V-O-O-M, along with Alan Bogle, Mark Costello, Sam Focius, Brian Gillespie, Meredith Ledger, Dean Major, and Stephen Riam, who does the graphics, and John Santos. And they start um, putting out a bunch of parties, putting on a bunch of parties uh, in Detroit, small like the loft parties in new york they talk about their party clonk from july 5th 1992 had alan olam as a headliner dj and and they're going into central detroit where there's so much abandoned real estate and they're bringing in um you know it's just a reality of the scene at this time that the white suburban kids are getting hipper and hipper to the scene and are now wanting to come into the city to go to these parties and so they're getting a mixed a quote mixed liberal crowd but some people like carl craig in particular see it as slumming it's like you know you don't come down to detroit the rest the rest of the time why are you coming down here to party um and they talk about one particular incident at Cindy's Cat, which is a party they had on November 21st, 1992, where um, Brian Gillespie was wearing a honky T-shirt and DJ Paris, the Black Foo, a.k.a. Matt Gowdy, was wearing a blonde wig and a T-shirt with the N-word on it. Although Gillespie said that they had the shirt slipped, which is even worse. And now I think just, I think he was saying that the story got out afterwards that you know the the they they reversed the the names on the shirt like uh, in the retelling it was worse because they, um, they it, it was retold a little bit more inflammatory than maybe it was at the time. I see. Okay, that makes sense. And, but, and uh, you might be more familiar with Paris the Black Foo via his band the Detroit Grand Poobas. They they made this bizarre track called Sandwiches, which again, if if I had twenty choices to like stack an episode with stuff i would have had uh, sandwiches in there because it's a it's a bizarre bit of electro tech cool i will i will be on the lookout for that as should our listeners and as always checks out the, check out the mixography in the underground massive so you can hear some of the live sets that are being played by some of the djs that he talks about in this period of time but yeah that happens to be the show that underground resistance shows up for of course underground resistance very militant uh very much um black consciousness and so uh mike banks ends up calling bishka at home afterwards and it was quote a learning experience as bishka says and, and and he also says it was pretty scary so um you know that's just part of the cultural collision when when you get people from different cultures coming together and sharing music there's going to be some rough edges that need some smoothing and some conversation. Yeah, well, you have to keep in mind that Detroit is completely hollowed out at this point and abandoned. Uh, the, the the job market is destroyed. The auto industry has completely left it behind. So it's not – I mean, it is a race thing, but it's a class thing as well. And it's, uh, it's an anger at the idea that these white suburban kids who are outside the city and still in an uh, economically advantageous situation refuse to come into Detroit – uh, you know, would never live there, but are perfectly willing to to come in and, and party. And I think Carl Craig was the one that that criticized them, calling them tourists. And Mark Bishke said, you know, uh, he he wanted to take action before this tacky white people thing happens in Detroit. And, you know, it's worth noting he's white too, uh, but you know, he's queer, uh, and uh, you know, still still kind of on on that edge where he's not interested in in spending his time. Uh, introducing all of these kids who are just, you know, coming into the scene off these salacious stories of drug use and aren't really there for the music. He has no time for that. So yet there's bifurcation happening in the scene. The rave side is aggressively technicolor and somewhat childlike and idyllic. And then there's the more serious people in Detroit who, you know, have are not interested in in that element of it. And they want to develop this thing into a respectable scene on the merits of the music. So you know, it, it all makes me a little bit uncomfortable because honestly, you know, for the most part, you hear this story that the rave scene is so great at transcending 
race. And then every so often you have a situation where you realize, no, well, you know, you look a bit closer and it's not always the truth. Yeah, it's it's hard to transcend something like America's uh, founding sin. Um, and and yeah, and it's also it must have been really disorienting for the Belleville Three and their associates who invented this music helped create the scene globally, but then lost control of it very, fairly quickly in Europe, which is one thing to lose control of something far away from your own home. You know, how people are dancing to music in Manchester or what they're mixing your records with in Berlin can't be as disorienting as seeing the influence of that international music come home to your city and 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 bring in lure in the white suburbanites who ignored you know your music for all this time suddenly they're all over it and overrunning things and it talks about another party Skylab on the uh, Skylab 5 on April 18th 1993 this was in the Bankel building which is another abandoned building Derek May was headlining and afterwards, uh, Richie Houghton goes home and cuts spastic. And so he's, and then this leads us into Richie Houghton. But let's take our break, hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll talk about Richie Houghton and his fabulous career. And so Richie Houghton, he's um, inspired to go home and, and cut the track spastic, which is going to be one of, I guess that's the first Plastic Man track. Is that correct? Uh, I don't know if it's the first plastic man track but it's uh, it's definitely the big plastic man hit it was so big they didn't even include it on the first album because they wanted to sell sell it more as a single and the interesting thing about spastic is that it was basically a 23 minute jam on his drum machines and it's just basically the drum machines there's very little else to it and and Houghton didn't think he had anything special after recording it it just went onto a tape and then he forgot about it. And it wasn't until a month or two later that he was playing back some old recording reels to to some friends and some some people at his uh, at Mute Records that they were saying that's the one, that's a hit. And and he still didn't really believe it until he cut a dub of the track and played it in Berlin, not expecting like too much of a reaction from it. And everybody just went completely bonkers for it. So this is kind of his realization that this kind of minimal soundscape is is something that that works as well. Yeah, this is this is the the new direction for Richie Hot. But let's let's backtrack a little bit and talk about his uh, life and career up to this point. So he's born June fourth, nineteen seventy, in England, but brought over to Windsor, Ontario, because his dad was uh, a, a tech guy for the car companies and and. Um, had a good career there in Windsor. He and his brother Matthew Houghton, the younger brother, uh, have this pretty idyllic childhood. The, you know, Richie's running a Star Trek bulletin board, BBS uh, online. He meets future DJ Carl Kowalski there. Um, he becomes a DJ. His parents are willing to take him into Detroit to these black clubs, and so he's way hipper than your average kid. He's going to Detroit Shelter um, quite young as a teen. And starts, uh, you know, bugging people, gets a shot to DJ. He starts DJing as Richie Rich. Get it? Ha ha. <laughs> not, not, not a great name, especially <laughs> when you take into account the implications that we just went over about what was going on in Detroit. But it was innocent enough because Richie Houghton was always being asked by people if they should call him Rich or Richie. So Richie Rich is just a kind of a play on on both being his name. But it's not yeah. a great name. And neither some of his other producer names like Robot Man. It's like, oh, it's like it's close, but it is extremely not good. So fortunately, he figured out the naming, the namings before he got locked into something unfortunate. Yeah, it's, that's one of the beauties of this genre of music is you can always uh, change your, your name and put out records under different identities. Um, and it's interesting. Derek May talks about how he had met a very young Richie Hutton before Richie was a DJ and been impressed with the kid that he he remembered that kid. And, and you know, uh, and Hutton was straightforward telling him, I'm going to do what you do. And, you know, Derek May noted him and remembered him. Yeah, there's yeah. a weird duality with this guy where uh, Houghton is a self-described introvert and a shy person. And that's definitely – it comes through in a lot of uh, things in his life. He only got his first DJ gigs at the shelter because his girlfriend was uh, was uh, incessantly bugging the, the owner of the club to book him. It wasn't him. So if it wasn't for her – he wouldn't have been able to kind of get up the nerve to go in and, and, and ask for these shots. So she was his first booster slash uh, booking agent. 
and and then uh, you know there's situations where Derek May remembers him because he has this intensity to him. So he's an introvert, but he also has this kind of. Uh, first off, he has the advantage of of being raised in a household hold full of electronics and computers and musical gear. His dad was a real uh, gear freak, and not only did they let him travel to Detroit, but they you know let him use all the gear that they had. He had a tech 12, he had uh, drum machines and stuff like that. So he, he had all, oh, and computers, obviously it's extremely important. Uh, the fact that he had all of the computers to, to, to play with. So he was, he had a lot of know-how in a lot of different areas that a lot of people didn't because he was kind of advanced on the tech sphere because of his father and, and the gear that he had. Yeah. He, he was blessed with a lot of gifts because of his family background and also his own talents and um, he's getting out there, making an impression on people, meeting people. One of the people he meets fairly early is John Aquaviva, who becomes his partner at Plus 8 Records. Aquaviva had started DJing all the way back in 1980 in London, Ontario. Uh, Kowalski, the, uh, Carl Kowalski, the guy that Richie had met on the Star Trek BBS, he introduced Aquaviva uh, to Shelter, which is where Aquaviva met Houghton in 1989. Aquaviva had a 16-track MIDI studio. This is a technology that lets different... Uh, bits of technology talk to each other sort of standardized sort of the meta uh, it allowed computers to turn the knobs on a synthesizer so if you had you know 16 track midi studio allows you to hook 16 pieces of hardware into a computer and have the computer sync all of the, the all of the synthesizers and drum machines and everything and have it all play nice and clean together which was a revolution yeah, it was a big deal. And if you read about anybody who was trying to do synthesizer stuff in the 70s, enormously time intensive and, and laborious, and they'd have to retune synthesizers and trying to get two different synthesizers to work together or synthesizer and drum machine to be in sync, very difficult. Um, even people like Giorgio Moroder are struggling with things like that. But be that as may, um, Aquaviva and Hot and Hookup, Aquaviva's got an early Akai S900 sampler, which just has like two seconds of sample time, but um, they get down to it. Uh, he and Hot and former group States of Mind collaborate on the Elements of Tone album. And I, there's a quote in here, Richie Houghton very early on is bragging about um, how they're doing. He boasts to DJ Alan Oldham that the EP is, quote, number one on Evil Eddie Richards chart number 19 in Jocks, number one in Brand X's Motor City Top 10, and we got good reviews in Record Mirror. So right from the get-go, uh, Houghton is very aware of his media profile and how his stuff is is being received. Um, and and this artistic evolution is happening and happening fast. Very quickly thereafter, Houghton and Aquaviva meet another guy, Dan Bell, and form Cybersonic, whose track Technarchy is not quite energy flash but it's up there it's part of the big techno rave explosion in europe in a big way and very much in sync with the sort of burgeoning gava movement in belgium which is interesting because houghton and aquaviva both disassociate themselves pretty hard from this kind of stuff but they were all in there for a while yeah, Cybersonic was their full-on rave outfit. This was the stuff that could stand alongside the hardcore techno that was getting big in the rave scene internationally and, and at home. And uh, he also had another moniker, Fuse, which was equally intense in some ways, but definitely a bit more sonically interesting. But Cybersonic was where they put all of the ridiculous rave tracks to the point where the last track that they wrote for cybersonic they didn't they didn't even want to release on their own label they gave it to somebody in in germany and it was just basically a uh it, it was kind of a parody track to kind of point out all the things they didn't like about what was going on with with hardcore techno so once again that little bit of little bit of snobbery but you know you mentioned before that that richie was very aware of what was kind of going on he had a plan for everything and the smartest thing that that him and aquaviva did was start plus eight their label and the original plan was just to get tracks signed to compilations. But after having trouble with that, they just decided, let's make our own compilation. And I don't think that that compilation ever got made, but it, it got them on a trail to putting out tons of like writing tons of tracks and putting out those tracks on their label. And it's that do it yourself Detroit attitude coming through and hot and learned that from Derek May and the gang. They were all kind of. In a in a in the same scene together, and while Houghton wouldn't say that you know he was friends with May, they definitely hung out sometimes, and he would go to Derek May's house and see 
that he'd have all this gear in his kitchen or on the living room floor. And there was always a track loaded into the gear ready to jam with. And it kind of gave Houghton the idea of, of how to write and perform and record tracks that he still kind of carries to this day, where a lot of his tracks are just long extended uh, jams that he then cuts down the best parts and, and just concentrates it all into like an eight minute or a 12 minute or a 15 minute track. So it worked for guys like DJ Pierre with acid tracks. It worked for, for Derek May and the gang, and it definitely worked for Richie. Yeah. And they also talk about, they do talk about one comp that plus eight uh, put out that got some backlash. I'm talking about the from our minds to yours, volume one comp, which they had a motto on there, the future sound of Detroit. And that got some serious pushback. First off, you're from Windsor, Ontario, not Detroit. And there were plenty of people in Detroit who felt like they were the future sound of Detroit, talking about the Belleville 3 and Underground Resistance and others. And so uh, there was some pushback. Houghton and Aquaviva found it hurtful, but they dropped the motto and and made amends and kept you know those relationships standing. It's also interesting the way Matos talks about Cybersonic. I feel like He's expecting us to read between the lines because he mentions that Dan Bell has a quote where he told a reporter, you know, something about 90 percent of the kids being on drugs. And you got the impression that Houghton and Aquaviva weren't too keen on that kind of just the facts, ma'am, honesty, <laughs> frankly, uh, there. Um and then they disband soon thereafter. Like they have a couple tours where they can't afford to take Dan Bell with them. We talked about that last time. That one of the tours they did with Moby, uh, it was just hot in Aquaviva. And then they disband the whole thing after a disastrous meeting with CBS Records. So I kind of wonder if Dan Bell isn't kind of the scapegoat for them personally as they distance themselves from the re- the hardcore rave scene. Uh, maybe, maybe it kind of felt to me like maybe they were positioning him as the as the bellwether for for their general attitude towards uh, the music. And uh, you know, there's nothing that makes you take a closer look at at a project that you're doing is when you're on the verge of success and someone like CBS Records puts a contract in front of you and says, "Well, sign this, and then you're Cybersonic, and you have to be Cybersonic for you know the indefinite future, and you can only make Cybersonic songs to make you realize." We need to stop making cybersonic music. And they did. And that's where Spastic comes in. And that's uh, Richie Houghton's new direction, his post-hardcore direction. There's also an interesting thing where he they talk about how he acquired the graphic, which it turns out the famous Plastic Man graphic was designed by Cal- Cal- California skateboard designer Ron Cameron. But Houghton initially bought the graphic from somebody else who had no rights to the graphic and is just claiming they did and but ultimately he makes it right with Cameron and gets to use the graphic but let's hear our next track this is Robert Robert Hood the only non Richie Houghton track this week this is minus from 1994 Minus by Robert Hood, formerly of Underground Resistance, 1994. Why'd you pick this one? How did a non-Richie Houghton track get in here? Oh, you know, we were talking about Robert Hood, and I felt like he deserved to be in there, especially because of his contribution to Minimal. Not only did he uh, did he coin the phrase the term Minimal, he's considered one of, if not the father of minimal techno. And one of the things that I like about him is that he says that minimal techno doesn't have to be sparse. It can all, it's, it's just, it's minimal with, with the elements that it brings. And this minus track, uh, is very simple, but it's very haunting. And it, and it's, uh, it just kind of tickled my ear when I was going through and listening to the discography, trying to, trying to pick out something to, for the show. Well, I think I think you picked a good one. And and again, you know, Simon Reynolds was really down on this stuff and particularly knocked Robert Hood and Carl Craig both. Um, but I've enjoyed it and I enjoyed Matos as much more just straight up positivity about about this genre. I tend to prefer appreciations of music rather than criticisms of music. So um, 
Well, it's such a broad scene and there's so many different kinds of music. And it's funny because uh, speaking for myself, the number of things that I used to hate that I now love and the number of things that I now kind of don't like, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, taste, taste is across the spectrum. Everybody has different taste. It's so relative and your taste now won't be your taste in five years or 10 years or in 20 years. So it's, there's nothing to say that something is good or bad. It's just how you're feeling about it in the moment. So there's such an opportunity for people to miss out on things because it's just not their jam right now. Yep. You never step in the same river twice, as the ancient Greeks used to say. And, and like ancient rivers, Voom, the pro promo group, they were fragmenting all the time. Different combinations of those people would come together and do one-off promotions or, or a series of promotions under different names. So they promoted things as the big three, Bent Fabric, the Lollipop Kids, uh, Dean Majors solo promos were called System. Uh, there were up to 10 promoter teams at the peak. Um, and then the police, oddly enough, were not a problem until 1995 or so. Before that, most of the promoters felt like the police were actually kind of helping them out, keeping the serious gangbangers out, uh, kind of giving them a heads up when there was trouble. But uh, Dean Major says that that's not entirely true, that every time he got system parties up to about 400 people, then the cops would bust him and he'd be back down to 200. So, And that also gives you an idea the scene in Detroit is just not as massive as, as the numbers of people that are coming out um, in New York or L.A. or even Madison, Wisconsin. You know, frankly, a lot of the other Midwest areas are drawing in bigger crowds crowds yeah also, the numbers here sound like they're 150 to like 300 regularly and then occasional bigger parties with seven th 700 to like 1500 people yeah so nothing like the groups of five ten you know even 20 30,000 that you're, you're seeing in la around this time um and the budgets are really small vooms party budget would typically be 50 to 100 bucks richie hotton's promotions on the other hand have much bigger budgets befitting richie rich he's got a much better sound system um, in the upper Midwest, only Woody McBride's wall of bass in Minneapolis compared to the, to the systems that Richie Houghton was bringing up. And um, Dean Major's interesting because he's one of these people who's willing to say, yeah, I was selling ecstasy. Uh, I was making sure that there was plenty of ecstasy at my parties because as a DJ, I did not want people going to bed early. I wanted to dance people up and dance all night. And he kind of I think he does just come out and say that he was dealing uh, ecstasy for Richie Houghton or at Richie Houghton's party. So uh, Houghton staying sort of one step removed, although he also did have this promo where he had A in quotes and E in quotes in this arts and entertainment, A and E, A being for acid, which LSD was big in Detroit before ecstasy. Ecstasy kind of comes late to Detroit, doesn't hit until 1994 in a big way. And so that's interesting that um, I guess it's fitting that Houghton is going to keep a distance from this kind of stuff, but, but Dean Major, who has less to lose in a, a much smaller career, can be pretty open about the business connection yeah. between drug dealing and, and raves. Yeah. You know, the book kind of touches on the fact that many of the promoters end up handling it itself. You know, for, for me, I always thought it was a better idea to, to, to let the drug thing take care of itself, either through like people like Dean or, you know, just just letting whatever dealer from whatever faction that runs the drug trade in your city. Just, you know, in my case, that was the Hells Angels. Just let them come in and do what they're going to do because they're going to do it anyways. And the only rule is you don't kick them out or confiscate their stuff and then you won't have problems. I, I never dealt drugs. I didn't even try ecstasy or, or acid until 2006, about eight years into my raving experience. So I was lucky about that, too, because there were several times we had, you know, the the guy the the hell's angels hulk hogan looking enforcer guys show up and i didn't know what was going to happen if if they thought we were running our own drugs in there we had uh the yugoslavian mob show up one time when we did a party in little italy Thanks. because and, and they they run that part of town apparently and they brought a guy that was going to jail on monday and this is saturday night and they told me he was going to stab me in the balls if they thought i was dealing drugs well, I consider yourself warned. I'm glad you had the sense to stay out of the Hells Angels business as well. I, I heard that uh, that didn't work out well for the Rolling Stones and other people that, that get all up in their business. Ay, ay, ay. What a tangled web we weave. Um, then the, the chapter sort of wraps with a discussion of, of Richie Houghton's promotions, which he gets into in a big way in 1994. He's got um, Heaven and Hell on February 5th. That's at uh, 1315 Broadway, which was the address of the old Music Institute. 
Then he's got Hard uh, and the Bankle Building on April 10th, 1993. I guess that was before the February 5th one. He's got Harder on June 19th, 1993. This was at the Capitol Street Warehouse. And then Hardest was going to be at Roma Hall on October 16th. Frequently collaborated with Room. Um, Harder got busted before it began and had to move to a big studio outside Derek May's house um, or his office complex there. Um, but Richie would like to, he would typically book fewer DJs playing longer sets and almost always had himself as the headliner. Uh, Harder and Hardest both had two rooms, had the big room where he's uh, doing his thing, techno and, and minimal techno, but also had his brother, uh, Matthew Houghton, as the acid guru, spinning ambient stuff in, in the smaller room. Um, and then his album, they talk about his album, Plastic Man's album, Sheet One, which was on Nova Mute, which was a techno spinoff of UK's Mute Records. And Mute Records is a pretty big indie. So this is pretty big time record business stuff. Um, that the, the hardest party was supposed to be a release party for Sheet One. And this is just classic that that CD came with an insert that looked like a sheet of blotter acid. And I remember one of my roommates had that. Uh, CD back in the day and we just thought it was the stupidest thing ever like like we didn't know is this acid or is it why are they pretending like why are they making a sheet of paper that looks like acid it definitely feels like a like not a thing that you would want to have in your possession and and that worked out badly for a young man in Rockwell, Texas, who was busted July 27, 1994, and charged with possession of LSD just for having the CD. Like the, the cops saw the sheet, looked like water acid to him, took the kid in. Uh, uh, Mute ultimately had to send a sealed copy of the CD so that they could um, display it in court and, and help the kid get acquitted or kid young man get acquitted. Um, but yeah, just craziness. I, I I hope they've come to regret that. Um, <laughs> just not not wise, I don't think. But makes it pretty clear what the vibe was. Yeah, um, Hutton's Hutton's events were uh, a reaction to like the candy rave, bouncy castle, kitty rave stuff that that he'd witnessed while on tour with the see the. It wasn't see the light. He wasn't with see the light, but he had gone on one of those uh, one of the uh, the NASA promoted uh, U.S. tours. And just came out of it with a bad taste in his mouth about the direction that Rave was going in. And, uh, you know, these events were a chance for him to design his events differently from many other Raves. Very minimal lighting, very little de decoration, just a big black box with massive speakers and a strobe. Nothing to distract you from the main attraction, which was the music. Yeah, although sometimes like Voom would fill rooms with plastic packing peanuts and things like that, kind of low-tech things. But yeah, he's got black sheeting everywhere, which is a massive, disaster, potentially disastrous fire hazard. Fortunately, none of these went up in smoke. But, uh, you know, they talk about a party spastic, which is the subject of this chapter, August 13th, 1994. This was at the Packard plant, and Packard was this luxury car brand. I know they were still running big time in the 30s, like Bugsy Siegel and pittsburgh phil mobsters drove packards like that was a fancy big powerful car the packard plant was this enormous building where they had uh you know had the factory for packard and so they um had to have this plastic sheeting hung to guide party goers away from the pitfall so you would go through these plastic tunnels and that would steer you to safety but otherwise it's completely dark just craziness um yeah, pit, pits and open elevator shafts, and it's just this is one of those venues that's like a massive no-go these days. But back in 1994, the city was so loose, the cops probably weren't going to show up if you fired a handgun off in a neighborhood, let alone, you know, throw a party in the bowels of an industrial plant in an, an abandoned part of the city. This is where I can understand the cops being a problem and not a problem because the cops are busy. The cops have things to do. The cops are understaffed. They're not going to want to deal with your stuff unless you make them deal with it. So this is why you can get away with having having an event at the Packard plant and uh, and and just, you know, have no issue with it because the cops are just doing other things. They're overwhelmed. Yeah, Detroit was collapsing. You know, there had been massive white flight. The city was bankrupt. There were constant fires and and the the city just becoming empty. You know, look at Detroit on Google Maps sometime and and zoom in and you'll see block after block that used to be houses that used to be office buildings that used to be factories just nothing there now and and in the 90s was when um that transition was sort of being completed the city's 
reaching its nadir of, of rot and decay there. Um, and he's got multiple DJs. He's got Carl Kowalski as DJ Jetstream play, as the opening DJ. Terry Mullen came up from Chicago to play. Um, Richie Houghton headline, of course, as Plastic Man. And this is a party where a lot of people watching it were like, we we know Richie's going to be big because there's so much UK press there. And, and it was just obvious that that big stuff is going on. But let's hear our last track. This is Plastic Man's Inkstro Prada women's wear version from 2021. Inkstro, the Prada women's wear version from Plastic Man 2021. 2021, what's going on, Ryan? Why'd you know, you- so many times you, well, you don't force me to, but the format forces me to stay like in the 90s or the early 2000s or whatever else like that. But I just figured if we're going to, sh- you know, spend the entire episode mostly on Richie Houghton's output, I can end the episode with one of his n- newer releases. And to me, it's interesting because, you know, he's willing to release this uh, product that he made for uh, a Prada uh, fashion show, and it's actually pretty banger. It's uh, it's it's really good. It's really dark, and it's got a real good groove to it. And this is where you know Richie Houghton gets a lot of heat over the years for you know if you listen to his discography, like seventy percent of it is very minimal, and thirty percent of it is you know accessible to a degree. But uh, I think his body of work stands for itself, and uh, it's been going for 30 years, 30 plus years now. So you got to give him respect. Well, thanks for introducing us to this newer track. And then uh, they talk about how the party um, had had a primitive video projection of the Plastic Man uh, character dancing around, which uh, hit the spot at the time. Even though looking back, it's, it was pretty uh, primitive. Uh, DJ Eric Hopped followed. Um, and Mullen closed, but somebody set off pepper spray inside the plastic bag complex and almost shuts down the party. Um, and those those who stay get a bonus got a bonus set from Houghton. So this is just kind of ridiculous backstabbing crap that you see sometimes at raves, like some punk setting off a can of pepper spray in the main room. It's like whether it's out of malice or stupidity, it's just stuff like this that can turn a, a really good night into a terrible disaster. And when a scene relies on these like lightning in a bottle moments to thrive, it's very easy for the entire scene to get thrown off kilter because some dumbass pulls a fire alarm or uses pepper spray or, you know, it's like a, the, the, the scene is a delicate baby and it needs to be nurtured and loved. And, and the, it just wasn't possible over the long run with the number of sketchy people involved. Yeah. And that's kind of, the whole narrative of this book is as Matos is is showing us these sort of rise and fall moments that are happening in the States and showing us that even though there is so much creativity coming out of Detroit, creativity that is going to have a massive impact all over the world right away. It's not even like they were ahead of their time. They were just the future is unevenly distributed and there was more future in Berlin or London than there was in Detroit. But then everything goes to shit for Houghton on April 20th, 1995. Uh, the day after um, Matthew Houghton gets busted at the border, and this is the day after Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols had had blown up the Alfred Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City and killed 70-something people. So the Border Patrol is much more activated than they had been prior to this. This is long before 9-11, but this is kind of one of the precursor events i'd say along with the bombing of the world trade center in the early 90s when they blew up a car in the parking garage not when they flew planes into it in 2001 um that these were kind of the precursor mass terror events that set the u.s on this road to becoming this surveillance police state that we are now but anyway houghton's good matthew his little brother gets busted at the border and Richie had lied to the border authorities and claimed that he was not working in the States, but they found enough evidence in his car to, and, and his brother's car 
to ban him for 18 months. So essentially, well, they tried to ban him indefinitely. Like it's uh, yeah. when you when you get banned, uh, it can be it can be five years, it could be 10 years, it can be indefinitely. He Richie Houghton has a lawyer that manages to get him back in after 18 months, but it's like. Uh, a lot of people just get banned for five, 10 years and that's it. And I, I had a friend of mine, uh, from Ottawa said they were in, he was in a group called the loose cipher project, which was a hard acid trance, uh, live group. And they were going to America to tour with lab four, which was a really big deal. It was their big coming out thing. It was going to set them up to be top level headliners for, for possibly like a long time down the road. And they just got stopped at the border with all their gear and banned five years. And it, I wouldn't say it destroyed their music careers, but it, it, you know, it stopped them from being able to grow past the regional Canadian scene, which is, you know, basically in the big picture, destroying their musical careers. Yeah. And, and as Matos has made clear, although in the subtle way that he does things, like he's mentioned that Houghton has the most money to invest in his events, that he's got the best sound system. And so when he is taken out of the scene, when he can no longer play in the U.S., and yeah, because he had lied to the border authorities, they wanted to get punitive with him and never let him come back. He, he's got the resources to fight it legally and did get back after 18 months. But nonetheless, essentially crippling his career in the States for 18 months at a critical juncture when – had he been able to tour and play more in the States, not only would the scene in Detroit have gotten bigger, but Richie Houghton would have gotten a lot bigger. And so this is yet again another one of these came close but not quite moments and, and one of these sort of rockets that launch and then and then crash early. And this helps explain why it took into the 21st century for EDM to become a true mainstream pop success in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. The border is such a pain in the ass. It was a pain in the ass like back, you know, before, but now it's just like after 2001, it's just so much worse. And it's like as when I was throwing parties, we would book people from England over over America, like hands down all the time, because half the time you you book a DJ from America and they're not going to make it across the border. It's just the 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 U.S. Canada border is annoyingly tight. Uh, and all you need is one border guard who has an idea about what's going on at raves to really mess everything up for, for anybody that's trying to cross, be it, be it partiers, uh, be it DJs, producers, whatever. Yeah. And back in the day when it was an underground movement, the police don't like underground movements. The police will grudgingly respect and work with massively successful, popular, well-funded corporate movements. They're not into the underground stuff that doesn't have that imprimatur of power and money that they respect. So, you know, once again, the revolution uh, got snuffed uh, in, in the cradle. And so that's it for our discussion of Chapter 9, Spastic, Detroit, Michigan, August 8, 1994. When we come back next week, we'll be talking about even further 96 from Blue River, Wisconsin, from May 24th to 27, 1996. So there's two chapters that take place in 1996. Then one chapter in 1999, so we've only got three more chapters in the 90s, and then the rest of the book is going to be in the 21st century. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. We've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boltfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boltfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boltfoot.com. Grown here, sewn here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate talk about the 1996 Even Further Rave 
which saw the American debut of Daft Punk, and they also check in on the development of Chicago House in the mid-1990s. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.